welcome to the Seeds Church Podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe to us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and on our Apple and Spotify podcasts. We hope you enjoy this inspiring message from our Sunday service. The Bible reading today comes from Colossians 1, 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Well, good morning, everybody, and good morning to those who are joining us online. It's such a privilege to be with you this morning, and some of you are wondering, well, who the heck is he? Uh, And uh, so 25 years ago, I was a student minister here, uh, and uh, one of my claims to fame during that time was they used to let me worship lead from time to time. I was the Milli Vanilli of worship leaders in that there were certain songs where they would turn me down in the microphone so that you wouldn't have to endure my out-of-tune singing. So, But I was student minister here for uh, about 25 years ago and really Sue and I worshipped here with our family for 10 years uh, while we were serving in another ministry. And uh, uh, Aberfall, as it was now, sees as it is now, um, such a, a precious community to us to this day. So it's a great privilege to be able to share with you um, this morning. Currently, Sue and I live and serve in Sydney. We're on the CEO and superintendent for Wesley Mission there, uh, which is uh, just a, a, a wonderful role, being stretched in every possible way and seeing God do amazing things in and through uh, that rich community, which has a history that stretches back 210 years, which is quite remarkable. You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, probably like you, um, I found myself watching a funeral. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to sit down and watch a funeral uh, one week night, but I found myself absolutely uh, uh, drawn in to the experience. And of course, this funeral was preceded by quite remarkable pageantry and ritual leading up to, to the, uh, the funeral celebration for Queen Elizabeth II. And, and perhaps, uh, you know, most remarkable about those weeks, that, that week or so leading up was the queue. You know about the queue, don't you? 
this queue that um, existed. Now we'll see if this technology... Here it is. At its peak, there, this queue stretched more than 11 kilometres, you know, winding its way through the streets of London. If you, if you joined the back of the queue at its peak, you would wait 24 hours before you filed past the Queen's Coffin in Westminster Hall. So long was the queue, there was an app that was set up so that people knew how long it would take. Uh, there was a special uh, you know, weather uh, uh, forecast for the queue. It was a phenomenon in and of itself. But this remarkable uh, demonstration of people's willingness to line up in silence and solemnity in order to pay their respects to a remarkable leader, Queen Elizabeth II. I mean, I found it remarkably moving. And then, and then I started to watch the funeral. I, w- I was going to switch it off or do something else, but then got drawn in by just the beauty of the liturgy that came from Westminster Cathedral. And then I found myself weeping. <laughs> and I found myself weeping when they sang that wonderful Wesleyan hymn, Love Divine or Love Excelling. might have something to do with the fact that we had it at our wedding down at Coro Valley, but what I found profoundly moving is I know the last, I know that hymn off by heart. And I know the last verse. You might know these words. It says this Change from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. And the Queen picked this. She picked this hymn. And then at the end of that funeral, when the crown was taken off the coffin, the scepter was taken off the coffin and placed on the altar, till we cast our crowns before thee. My friends, this morning when you came into worship, we did not come, we did not come to pay our respects to a dead hero. We came to worship a crucified, risen and conquering king. That is why we are here. And that is what this morning's passage that Kate read to us is all about. So we step into it. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the incredible witness of Queen Elizabeth II and how her funeral proclaimed the gospel to so many people. We thank you that perhaps her greatest testimony is not what she did, but who she pointed towards. And Lord, we pray this morning as we dive deep into your word, that anything I say would point to you. We would lift up the name of Jesus, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. In his name we pray, and all together we say... Amen. So the passage from Colossians that was read to us before, let me give you some context. It was written around the year 62 AD. Paul is in chains in Rome and he's writing to a church he's never visited before, but he's had everything to do with his establishment. We have to go back 10 years earlier to around the year 52 AD. Uh, Paul had been in that wonderful cosmopolitan regional city, Ephesus, 
And there he had preached and ministered for two or three years. And such was the impact that he had. From a handful of believers, a church had flourished and grown to be many hundreds, if not thousands of people. Such was the impact of Paul's preaching, it caused riots. It caused uproar within the city. And Ephesus was this regional centre, and so people would travel to Ephesus from all around the surrounding region. It was a port city. And Epaphras was one of those leaders who had come from Colossae. Colossae was 70 miles inland. It was a poor, smaller town. It was dwarfed by its much larger neighbours like Laodicea. It was in the Meander Valley River. Meander River Valley. And Epaphras had come to Ephesus. He'd heard the gospel. He'd responded to the gospel. He'd surrendered his life to Jesus. And he'd gone back to Colossae and he told his friends and his neighbours. And they heard the gospel through him. And through his witness and testimony, they themselves surrendered their lives to Jesus. This, my friends, is how it happens. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And... uh, uh, Epaphras and that early church, they, they met in uh, the home of, of a wealthy businessman called Philemon. That might be a name that's familiar to you as well. And, and so Paul, has never, he's never visited Colossae, but he's played a, an integ- integral part in seeing that church established. And while he's languishing in prison in Rome, he hears some troubling news from this church that he's never visited before. He hears that there have been some other so-called Christian believers who'd rolled into town and had been saying to the Colossians, Jesus is great, but you need more. He's like the first rung on a ladder. But if you really want to get close to God, you need secret passwords in prayer. You need to practice particular forms of fasting. There's some stuff you have to do. You need to know some things about the stars, about astrology. I mean, Jesus is a great first rung, but there are more rungs to climb in order to get to God. And Paul hears this in, in, in Rome. He hears about the Colossian struggles. And so he writes this letter to a church he's never visited. And it's, this letter is an impassioned, beautiful, magisterial, poetic, compelling clarion call saying to the Colossians and saying to you and I, Christ is enough. He's more than enough. He's everything that you need. Christ is enough. What he is saying in his letter to the Colossians, we don't need a ladder climbing to God. We have a God who came to us on a cross. So we're going to step through this quickly, verse by verse. And see what it has to say to us 2,000 years or so later. Let's go to the first, first verse. It says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, in the ancient world, the, the Jewish people, they were radically different to everybody else in that they believed that there was just one God, not a multitude of gods. But they believed that this one God no one had fully seen, that he was invisible. And then Jesus comes onto the, onto the scene and his radical claim was this, to see him was to see God. That Jesus makes visible the image of the otherwise invisible God. Now, 
the language that's used here in the ancient Greek is the word icon. Icon. It means the exact and full representation. A few years ago, the, the world famous footballer, soccer player, Ronaldo, was uh, honoured by his hometown on the island um, where they named the airport after him. It's quite a great honour. And in doing so, they also unveiled a statue of Ronaldo, this wonderful statue. And here's what it looks like. Let me show it to you. There's Ronaldo on the right, and there's the statue on the left. Is this a full and exact representation, do you think? So the internet blew up when this came up, and then someone worked out, now, if Ronaldo looked like his statue, what would Ronaldo look like? And this is what he would look like if he looked like his statue. This is not what an icon is. This is not a full and exact representation. What Paul is saying is this. Jesus is the perfect and only complete portrait and representation of God. That Jesus reveals all of God's beauty, character, essence and nature. To see, Je- to see Jesus is to gaze on God. And Paul goes on to say, well, he's the firstborn over all creation. Is Paul saying something like that that God created Jesus before everything else, that that Jesus is part of creation? That's what our Jehovah Witnesses friends would say to us. No, 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 he's not saying that. Jesus was not created. He, He was and is the creator, as we'll see as the passage goes on. What he's saying when he says he's the firstborn, that is... He has supremacy over all. He is first in rank and honour. He is above all. He's not the highest point of creation. He is sovereign over all of creation. That Jesus is God's creation, is creation's means, its goal and sustainer. Now, a few years ago, astronomers uh, excitedly released data about that had come from the Kepler telescope, the Kepler telescope is a telescope that orbits the Earth, that gazes on 145,000 different stars, specifically searching for orbiting planets around those stars, and specifically looking for those planets that might have the capacity to sustain life. And there was this excited announcement that they discovered 219 new planets, and that 10 of these planets we're in what they call the Goldilocks zone. That is, it was just right. The conditions were just right for, for life potentially to be sustained. You know, physicists and astronomers, I mean, <laughs> do you know that you are a miracle in the middle of a miraculous universe? The fact that we are even sitting here is a miracle in and of itself. I mean, astronomers, physicists have have determined that for Earth, for for, for life to be sustained on Earth, that was a one in 700 quintillion possibility. That's, you know, seven with 20 zeros after it. It's a lot. I'm a recovering accountant. I know that's a lot. We live. We live in this finely tuned universe. Again, physicists tell us that um, if gravity was one trillionth of one percent 
heavier. Everything would collapse in on itself. If, if, if gravity was one trillionth of one percent lighter, everything would fling apart. Matter would not be able to coalesce and come together. We are this miraculous universe. Fred Hoyle, who is an atheist astronomer, he said the chances of life existing on earth are about the same as a tornado racing through a junkyard and miraculously manufacturing a jumbo 747. That's an atheist, physicist. We are a miracle in the middle of a miraculous universe. And what Paul is saying, what Paul is saying, it came from Jesus, it sustained through Jesus, and it will all return to Jesus. It's from, sustained, and goes to him. Let's go on to the next part of the passage. It says this. Let's see if we can get this to work. Might need some help at the back. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Him and he, all the way through here, is referring to Jesus. Jesus is the agent of creation, ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing. Everything that's seen and unseen. Again, physicists tell us that galaxies are pregnant with invisible, exotic material. That of the known universe, 68% is dark energy, 27% is dark matter, and only 5% of what astronomers and physicists can see right now is visible. And Jesus breathed all of it into existence by his word. Let there be. Let there be. Let there be. All things were created by and towards him. Everything began with Jesus and will end with Jesus. He's the Alpha and he's Omega. All things, all things spring forth at his command and all things will return to him at his command. He's the sustainer of the universe. Without Christ, without Jesus, active participation in creation, everything collapses. I love how one theologian puts it, H.G. Mole, he says this, that Christ keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. Now, here's the thing. You know, I've rattled off a whole heap of scientific facts and they are astounding. But science can observe, it can describe, it can analyse the wonder and the majesty of the universe and of creation But what science cannot do is answer the questions of why, who, where. I mean, C.S. Lewis famously used the analogy of a billiard table and one billiard ball hitting another billiard ball and having an impact on it and and that science can explain the physics of of the reaction of one billiard ball hitting another billiard ball. But what, what Lewis went on to say is that What science can't explain is who holds the cue. Who sets it all in motion? And what Paul is saying in this passage, 
1900 years before Lewis, that Jesus is the rhyme. He's the reason and the rationale of the universe. He's the center, the origin, and the destiny of the universe. We go on to the next part of the passage. And he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus has first place everywhere, including in this church. Now, Jonathan might have the title senior pastor. I might have the grandiose title CEO and superintendent minister. But can I tell you, the head of Wesley Mission, the head of Seeds, the head of Seeds Corralta Park will not be Mark Elford. It is Jesus. It's Jesus. Can I say it's a special joy for us to see that wonderful adventure you're about to step into. 35 years ago, I lived in the Corralta Park Manse. My parents, who were going to college at the time, and to know that Seeds is going to be launching Seeds at Corralta Park, how good is God? How good is God? But Jesus has first place everywhere. He's the head of the church. He's the forerunner for all who will be raised to eternal life. He's the Firstborn amongst all creation. It goes on to say this. For God himself was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul is making radical claims here. It's the heart of the Christian message. Claim number one is saying this. That, that the human Jesus, the, the flesh and blood Jesus, contained all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. There is nothing God is that was not in Jesus. The essence of God was fully exhausted in the Son. The Creator clothed Himself in the form of creation. This is the miracle of the incarnation that we'll be celebrating in a couple of months. But the second claim is even more astounding in some respects. But not only did the human Jesus contain the fullness of God, but secondly, the Creator embraced the frailty of creation. And not only that, not only did He enflesh Himself, become human flesh, He subjected Himself to its lowest point, death on the cross. The one who is the source and sustainer of life subjected himself to the great enemy, which is death. The cosmic Christ was nailed to a cursed tree. Why? To reconcile all things back to himself. He goes on. Once you are alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move, you do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now Paul paints a picture of the ugliness of human behaviour. All that is seen and unseen. Sins of omission and commission. 
and how this alienates us from God, separates us, we who are unholy from a holy God, and that this is our, a persistent and permanent condition. This is our lowly estate apart from Christ. And that there's this human hunger and thirst that's hardwired into us, that eternity is established in every human heart, that there's something in us that, that hungers and thirsts for someone or something just beyond our reach. And so there's this ache and this thirst and this yearning inside every human being. Can I climb enough rungs? Can I stretch far enough my hand in order to reach the divine? One of my great heroes uh, from history for me is Winston Churchill. And Churchill, of course, led um, not only England and Britain, but in many ways the whole world against uh, an opposing evils of the Nazis. And in leading up to D-Day and all the preparations that happened as, as the Allies prepared to, to launch the invasion to take back Europe, I mean, Churchill was engaged in every part of that preparation. Eisenhower was the general in charge of the Allied forces. And just before, after they just made final preparations, Churchill went to Eisenhower and said to him, when, we, when our boys land on the beaches of Normandy, I want to be on a ship just off the shore. I want to be there. I want to be able to see it firsthand. And Eisenhower was aghast. This is a prime minister. This is the leader of the allied, force, allied world in so many respects. And he said, you can't do that, prime minister. You'll be in danger. You'll be within range of the enemy guns. But, but Churchill being Churchill, he said... I will be there. And so Eisenhower appealed to a higher power. He went to King George VI, Queen Elizabeth II's father. And he told King George VI, your prime minister is insisting on being on a ship just off the shore of Normandy within the range of of, uh, the enemy's guns. Can you talk him down? And so King George VI, knowing Churchill came up with a unique way of talking him down. He went to Churchill and said, Winston, if you're going to be there, I'll be there too. (laughs) And Churchill said to King George VI, but Si, you can't do that. We can't risk your life. And the king said to Churchill, and neither can we you. And Churchill eventually back down. And what's at the heart of that story is this fundamental truth that we all understand. Kingdoms do anything they can to protect their king. It's the premise of chess, isn't it? You do everything you can to protect your king. When the king falls, kingdoms are lost. But here's the thing about the gospel story, my friends. Jesus, the king of glory, the king of creation, did exactly the opposite. He surrendered his life as a ransom. He became an atoning sacrifice. He made peace between us and the Father by reconciling us to the Father through his own sacrificial death. 
And so the crown of thorns that was placed on his head, which was meant to be a crown proclaiming his shame, actually proclaims his glory. My friends, what Paul is saying to the church at Colossae and what he's saying to us 2,000 years later, we do not need rungs to climb. We have a God who climbed down to us on a cross. There's no ladder that can reach high enough. But my friends, there's a cross that reaches low enough. Always has been and always will be. Lawrence Krauss is one of those militant atheists that the ABC likes to roll out on Q&A every now and then from America in the same sort of uh, vintage as Richard Dawkins and others. And he said a few years ago, Human beings are just a bit of pollution. If you got rid of us and all the stars and all the galaxies and all the planets and all the aliens and everyone, then the universe would be largely the same. We're completely irrelevant. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel declares that we are completely, utterly, totally, radically and sacrificially loved. We are precious to God. We're loved by the one who created us and in turn died for us. We do not, listen to this, my friends, we do not climb rungs on a ladder reaching for God, rather a God crowned with thorns climbed a cross reaching for us. Paul finishes, he says this. This is the gospel. He's writing to a church that's getting a bit wobbly about what the gospel is. This is the gospel, he says, that you heard and is being proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, had become a servant. This is the gospel. This is a worldview. This is a paradigm that you can trust that makes sense of the world, a worldview that provides answers to the why, the where, and the who. This is a worldview you can trust your life to, your eternity to. This is a worldview that's made possible by the hands, the same hands that formed and flung stars into space, the same hands which were outstretched and pierced on a cross. And Paul is saying to the church at Colossae, and he'd be saying to us here this morning, this is the gospel. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. This is all that you need, everything that you need, my friends. The only message you need to proclaim from this platform or at Corralda Park or wherever God leads you is this message because it's the power of God unto salvation. Michael Horton, a Reformed theologian, said this, the gospel is not good instructions, not a good idea, And not good advice, the gospel is an announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. For 15 years, Sue and I lived on the Gold Coast, uh, pastoring a church up there. We loved it. We lived five minutes from the beach. 
We were suffering for Jesus. And we'd go to the beach. Not as much as you would think. It's funny, isn't it, how that works out. But there were a couple of occasions over those 15 years where at least momentarily I was caught in an ocean rip. It's terrifying. When you feel like you have no power over the elements, where you're being dragged beyond your capacity to fight. And everything in you, when you get caught in an ocean rip, says to struggle against it. It's to fight against it. And, and tragically, that's what so many international tourists in particular will do on the Gold Coast every single year. And as they fight against the rip, as they tire, more often than you would like and hope, too many of them drown. Because it's the exact, even though it's everything in you screams, fight against it, fight against it, fight against it. It's the worst possible thing you can do when you get caught in a rip. What Surf Life Saving Australia will tell you, if you get caught in a rip, surrender to it. Let it carry you out. Let it carry you down the beach. Wait until the rip runs its course. It will. And then swim in. Wait, wait, wait. Do not fight the rip. You know, our culture, too many people think that freedom is in fighting the rip. It's fighting the pull of God. That, but, but, but freedom is not in fighting the rip, but in surrendering to it. The greatest force in the universe isn't an ocean rip. It's not a split atom. It's in the nailed, pierced hands of Jesus. The power of love drawing us to himself, wooing us to himself, our only true home. When we strain against God's love, we die exhausted and without hope. But when we surrender, when we surrender to that most compelling and powerful force of the universe, the gracious love of Jesus, then we discover the mercy, the forgiveness and the life that we long and yearn for. Now back in the late 90s, after the terrible massacres that took place in Rwanda, the United Nations rolled into uh, that beautiful country in Africa and they discovered that because of war and displacement and the carnage that had taken place, that vaccination programs for children had fallen way behind. And so they rolled out this very expensive, very elaborate education program to uh, tell, particularly Rwandan mothers, of the importance of vaccination. They had posters, they had radio ads, they had all sorts of pamphlets that they made available. And over the next year or two, the millions of dollars they poured into this education program to increase vaccination rates had zero impact. Didn't make a difference. What they hadn't taken into consideration is that you know, with the pamphlets and posters they had, many Rwandan mothers were illiterate, they couldn't read. And so the message just wasn't getting through. And then a Rwandan, they should have done this at the start, they asked a local Rwandan leader what they should do. And she said, you know, how Rwandan mothers communicate with each other is when they're down at the river washing clothes or they're in the market, they'll often sing to each other. 
And so what they did was they made up songs about vaccinations. And they spread virally amongst the Rwandan population. And over the next couple of years, through this folk singing, through this very organic way of communicating profound truth, important truth, the vaccination rates in Rwanda spiked up. Why do I tell you that story? Well, biblical scholars will tell us the passage we've just walked our way through is the remnant of an ancient hymn. The early church in Colossae, in Ephesus, in Laodicea, in Corinth, wherever this letter was passed around, would sing the words that Paul's written. In fact, Paul may well be reflecting back the lyrics of a song that he wrote and was already being sung around the churches that he'd planted and established. It's not the sort of lyric that we're used to. It doesn't feel like a song, but evidence is and points to the fact that it is. You see, some truths are so important, they can't be left as dry words in my mouth or your mouth. They have to be a song in our heart. They have to be a song in our heart. And the gospel, my friends, it needs a melody. It needs a melody. The gospel is a song sung by God that finds its way to our lips. It tells us, This melody, this song, that Jesus is the creator and the redeemer, that Jesus is God in human flesh. All the fullness of God dwells in him. That Jesus crucified and risen is God's song sung over us in all creation. That Jesus is the melody, the melody line that holds the universe in place. My friends, this is the gospel. Do not add to it. Do not subtract from it. There are no rungs climbing higher. There is a God who climbed low in order that we might be his friends. Just stand with me as I pray. In a moment, we're going to sing a wonderful song. In many ways, What I've done for the last 30 minutes or so is introduce this song. So this is not a song just to put an exclamation mark on the service or to transition to the foyer. This is a song where we get to respond not just with our lips and our voices but with our lives. What a beautiful name it is. This is an opportunity for us to surrender to the rip, the rip of God's love, either for the first time or again. (laughs) Because I don't know about you, I've been journeying with Jesus for more than 40 years and still I find times where I fight against the rip. And he's inviting us, wooing us this morning, surrender again. Surrender again. It's the power of my love my mercy, my grace, my forgiveness. Surrender again to my nail-pierced 
hands. That you might know the life that we sang about earlier, the abundant life, the life here that stretches out into eternity that's ours in and through him. So come Holy Spirit, I pray. As you have been present in our midst, may you be manifestly present now. Moving and stirring in hearts. Now what is, just spend a moment before we sing, just listening for the voice of God, for the voice of the Spirit speaking to us even now. What is he calling you to surrender? Calm, Holy Spirit. Well, thanks for listening to the Seeds Church Podcast. We hope you join in with us next week. For more information, you can visit our website at seedschurch.org.